Special thanks to Ben Cassidy, Mylan, and Thoko Kosi for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Wolf. And this is Southpaw. Twenty twenty has been one radical year, so there's been a lot of changes, and a lot of revealing, and a lot of movements. Recently, we had two simultaneous movements: one in pro wrestling, and one in martial arts, and in particular Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I think a part of this is because the quarantine gave a lot of us time away from training, or for wrestlers, time away from the ring. This started to remove the scales from our eyes. And the Black Lives Matter protests gave us courage, and we started to speak out. So this conversation with Eyepatch Wolf happened over a month ago. That's why you won't hear us speaking about either of these movements. Today on Southpaw, we have YouTuber Super Eyepatch Wolf, otherwise known as John Walsh. Hi, John. Hey, how's it going? It's really cool to be here. So in some ways, you are a very famous person. And in other ways, you are a very obscure person. <laughs> All depends on、uh, what someone's interests are, right? Yeah, it, it depends on the room, you know. <laughs> like,、um, you know, at like a aunt's wedding, no one will have heard of me. At an anime con, like a lot of people will know who I am. How is that juxtaposition then for you, being a regular person to being a celebrity when you go to a convention, or just as you said, depending on the room? Um, weird, honestly. Like, I think I think one people one thing like that's kind of hard to communicate to people with this stuff sometimes is like this was an accident for me. Um, I was just making videos about like just you know just anime, just anything I felt like, and I was only I only did it because I liked doing it. Do you know what I mean? And the kind of fame side of it, the notoriety side of it, that all was kind of just a byproduct. And it was. It took me a long time to really wrap my head around it. You know what I mean? I always remember the、um, the first encounter I ever had with a fan is still my favorite. I was at a. I I, I do like artist alleys in like anime cons and stuff. Like I like to draw prints and sell them and stuff. Um, and I was selling a girl a Hunter Hunter print, and so we got talking about the anime Hunter Hunter, which is like one of my favorites. And、um, she goes, "Oh, you know what? There's actually this video online you should check out.、Uh, it's called 'Why You Should Watch Hunter Hunter.' And that's that was one of my videos because like my face wasn't out there and no one knew what I looked like. And I was like,、um, 'Okay,、uh, I actually I actually wrote that video.' And like she takes a step back and her eyes go really wide and she goes.、Oh, You write for Super Eyepatch Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, kinda, yeah. <laughs> and that was—it's been an increasingly like weird escalation of encounters since that's happened. That brings up another good point. Then I know a lot of YouTubers, as they get bigger, they hire writers. Do you write all your own stuff still? 
hundred percent. I could ne- like never ever like I can't even let someone edit my videos. I could never ever <laughs> let someone write them. Okay, so since it's mostly your voice, do you find people know your work better than they know your face, or are you surprised how much your fans actually know about you? Um. There's definitely an element of that. I think even since very early on on YouTube, there's certain things that I do just like to keep private. Um, and so like most of the information out there is stuff that I've kind of let out there. So I'm not really that surprised when they know it. It's more when like people bring up something I said like four years ago in a podcast and like, so they'll like make an, in, they'll make a joke about it or something and be like, oh yeah, because you know, you, 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 cause, cause you love pasta so much. And I'm like, what, what the fuck are you talking? And then I'm like, oh, okay. And I'll remember. Um, it's, it's weird when you see like wrong information out there as well. Um, like I'm not a 26 year old married to a 30 year old actress and I li- living in Los Angeles, but that's like information that I kind of see floating around a lot. And it's like, okay, let's just uh, take a step back from that. Do you still have experiences like the one you mentioned where they just know your voice or your work, but not your face? Um, a lot of people know my face because like I've appeared more in videos over the years. Um, but it'll still happen, like especially if I do an artist alley um, and I'll be like, oh, that's five euro, please. And someone's ears are like prick up and they'll be like, wait. <laughs> I know your voice. Um, so, so like that'll happen too. So it's almost like what voice actors get. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So when did you start your channel? Uh, this was, so it was about, it was five years ago. Um, and I really, it, I had kind of taken like a really strange path up until that point. It was like, um, I, I used to work a job I wasn't really very fond of. And I left that job and I worked like freelance for, for a little while. And then I got a job in like this startup company. And it was one of those crazy startup companies where like the goal of the company was changing like every two weeks. You know, there was like all these pivots and stuff. And in that, I ended up like rising very quickly and became the head of production there after a couple of months after starting off as basically just like an assistant animator. And um, I got to like hire my own team and like train them all. And it was really great. The only problem, like it's a startup and startups are unpredictable. And um, one morning my boss called me downstairs, just like, we're letting you go. And he couldn't really give me a reason. But later on, I kind of figured that it was, they needed me there to put everything in place to kind of get the machine going to like, to, to build their pipeline. And once the pipeline was built and working correctly, like once I had done my job, they didn't need me anymore. And so I had to go back to like, just kind of working a regular job in animation. And like, it was a decent job, but it really wasn't where my heart was. And like, it was kind of soul crushing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so after a year, I just felt like I needed to do something again. Like I needed to take another shot. Nearly felt like I just needed to take ownership of the situation, you know? And so I just started putting together YouTube videos and, um, it was slow starting. Like, it's not like my videos ever like exploded straight away or anything, but, um, they slowly built up and like, I can still remember the, I remember one week I made a video and I uploaded it and I just, I, I didn't look at it. I didn't check it for like a week. Um, and then I came back to it and the next week it had 30,000 views and that was the most insane thing in the world to me. Like I couldn't get my head around how many people had seen this video. 
And um, it was it was re- it was a really cool experience. And kind of since then, the channel just kind of grew and grew. And I keep expecting it to fall off. You know, I keep expecting people to lose interest, but it hasn't happened yet. It will one day. Like that's the kind of that's the inevitable with fame. But it's 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 been cool. It's been a really weird, interesting way to make a living, and I still love doing it. You know, your background being animation, what made you decide to just put up videos where you're talking about and analyzing animation rather than just like making your own thing and just putting up a short video? Well. My favorite anime, my favorite kind of anime particularly, and like the channel's kind of broad now, I kind of talk about a lot of different stuff, but my favorite kind of anime was always shonen anime, like kind of battle anime, like really grounded in sports and like, you know, always like striving for self-improvements and all that kind of stuff. And I'm big into all that stuff. There was like this burgeoning like anime, anime community on YouTube. You know, there was this like, there were these people kind of like taking anime and really like dissecting them and pulling them apart and figuring out what made them work. But I think at the time there was still this like kind of feeling that shonen anime was kind of more of a kid's anime. It was kind of more, it wasn't really worthy of kind of these big long video essays, but it was my favorite kind of anime. And I loved these video essays, but no one was really making them in the way I wanted them to. And so I just made my own. And like nowadays, everyone makes videos about like shonen anime and i don't i'm not saying like i was the forefront of that but i think like i was one of the first of that zeitgeist so even with your background being in animation where you can make your own stuff it wasn't like you were trying to be a youtube creator you just saw something lacking in the youtube space so you were just like huh i have something to say about that right yeah totally rather than having this be a career yeah, yeah, I had never any intention of making it a career until that started to become viable. Like I can remember the first time like I turned on um I didn't even I didn't even um I didn't even turn on AdSense for like a year. And I can remember the first time I turned on AdSense and I was able to pay that month's rent with the AdSense from YouTube and I was like, "Okay, like I just made like you know enough money to pay my rent um that's interesting and then the channel kept growing and like it became more and more a viable way to make a living until eventually like i was making more money from youtube than i was making for my regular job and i didn't like my regular job so there was no point in keeping it but there was never like there was never like a drive to become a youtuber it was just a kind of series of smaller decisions does that make sense yeah it sounds like you were only thinking about making one video at the start and then you were like, oh, let me make another one. And it just kind of organically grew. You didn't know this was going to replace your day job. 100%. Like um, my first video is called Why You Should Watch Hunter Hunter. And that became a series of videos. Like I, Why You Should Watch X, Why You Should Watch One Punch Man, Why You Should Watch Yu Yu Hakusho. All these shows that I loved. But like when I started out, I had no intention of making a second video. I was just like, I'll make this video. That'll probably be fun. And then I'll, I, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't even think about it, honestly. Because it's very different from now, right? A lot of people start a YouTube channel with a plan to become a YouTuber and hopefully monetize this and make this a career, probably trying to model themselves after you. But that wasn't the way you did it. You did it kind of accidentally. You stumbled onto it. Exactly. And, you know, what you're saying is exactly right. I think for a lot of kids in school now, especially being a YouTuber, it's like it's it's like this generation's being a rock star. Now, 
you're not as famous as being a rock star and you certainly don't make as much money, but I think it's what a lot of kids really want, you know? Um, and I think that's difficult and I really struggle with this at times because I 100% believe in people following their dreams. Do what makes you happy. Like, I think that's a vital component of being alive. But at the same time, what made me happy when I started was making videos. It wasn't being a YouTuber. And so what I try and tell people is like, you should absolutely make videos. But if you make vid like making videos should be your goal, not being a YouTuber, because A, if you don't love making videos, trust me, you're not going to want to be a YouTuber because like 99% of this job is writing, editing and voice recording for 11 hours a day you know? And like, sometimes people see me at cons, like signing autographs and doing panels and like, you know, getting to go to parties and getting flown places and stuff. That's such a tiny part of the job. And if you don't love the other 99%, this is a miserable existence. You know what I mean? Um, so I really try and encourage people if it happened, like do it cause you love it. And if it goes further than that, fantastic, but you can't force it because I've, I've really seen some people like tear themselves apart. Like, oh, my ne my new video bombs and, you know, oh, no one's clicking on it. And like kind of they'll, they'll tweet that stuff out and it, it's kind of hard to watch. And it's that I don't think that's a good path for people. And also like, you know, there's a lot of downsides to being a YouTuber. Like um, I always say, this is the best job I've ever had. This is the hardest job I've ever had as well. You know, I've worked retail, you know, I've, I've worked an office job. I've worked management positions. I've hired people, I've fired people. This is the hardest job I've ever had. And the mental and emotional toll it takes can be massive. So having done animation and led a team of animators to doing this, where you're doing commentary and editing, which do you prefer? Um, well, what I miss about animation is um, the social aspect. I miss working with people, you know? Like, um, not long after I became a YouTuber, I started to realize that social interaction for me had become a commodity. It, it's like a resource that had to be managed. Like, I have to... I have to be careful that I get out and I see my friends and that I hang out with people and that I have that social engagement. And actually a massive part of why I started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is because I just miss the just casual day-to-day -day small talk with people. And I hated small talk when I was doing my job, you know, I don't want to talk about like the weather or anything, but when that's taken away from you and you maybe only interact with yourself or your significant other that day, you really start to feel it and the world starts to feel very small. And so I miss that side of it. In terms of like making animation itself, I did like making animation, but I also like, you know, I did jobs for like, um, I did jobs for the BBC and for Disney. And like, by the time the pipeline gets down to you, there's so little decisions to be made. And a lot of the times it can really feel like painting by numbers like you're and like there were some projects I worked on where I really got to be creative and do cool stuff and then there were others where it was like you were following a script you were ticking boxes I always described it as kind of like packing digital shelves you know and so I don't miss that side of it at all because honestly like I get to I get to do like little bits of animation for what I do now and I have a hundred percent creative control and that's kind of that's I value that more even if the work is less complicated. And that's an interesting point that you brought up that I don't know if people think about is the loneliness aspect of doing stuff on YouTube, because 
for the most part, even if it's somebody doing um, like a video blog, right? They're filming themselves or they're doing like you, they're doing voiceover. It's just you and the computer. And it's several hours a day of just you sitting in front of your computer. So you're basically by yourself all day. Oh, crushing. You know, like um, say the pandemic at the moment. Um, the pandemic means that my partner is currently working from home, which means I get to see them every day, nine to five, you know, like they're always around. And that to me is actually a massive social step up from when things are normal, because if she was leaving every day, I'd kind of only get a few hours with her in the evening or at night. And so I'm actually getting like more social experience now, but particularly before I joined jujitsu, like it's weird because there's sometimes I see like YouTubers kind of blowing up and I see them getting like really acting, acting out, like especially towards their audience and stuff. And I think they look like absolute freaks from the outside looking in. But when you work this job, and all your social comes from the feedback of your channel, comes from your Twitter accounts, you really start to value that feedback and you kind of need it for validation. And so then when that feedback's negative or when you feel like people aren't understanding you correctly, I think it can lead to a lot of hostility and a lot of very kind of unbalanced emotions, which is why I think you see these kind of YouTube breakdowns a lot. And, um, and that's something like I've had to really work on in my time being a YouTuber, like learning how to manage that emotional load and make sure that like I kind of am getting enough like social stimulation and like just interaction with people and that I'm kind of seeing people who are good for me and not kind of post, not like seeing, not like validating myself through my view counts, you know? Yeah, it's this weird YouTube feedback loop where the YouTuber and the audience can act out together and they're just kind of creating reactions against each other and then it just kind of exacerbates. Yeah, and like, it's weird how it actually invalidates normal social interaction. Like, before I really started to realize this is becoming a problem for me, I, um, I'd be at parties and I'd just be on Twitter the entire time. Like, you know, talking to fans and like talking to other creators. And it's like, when you think about it, you're at a fucking party and you're on Twitter, you know? <laughs> so what was your conclusion from that? How do you stop yourself from doing that? Um, honestly, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was a huge part of it. I started a year and a half ago and it contributed so much to me kind of getting my head straight and learning to learning that there was a life outside YouTube and outside social media. Do you think part of it is because YouTube, you're so much in your head because you're thinking, you're writing, you're scripting, you're editing, and you have to kind of map it all out in your brain. Whereas jujitsu, it's a physical art. You have to be living in your body. You have to react before you can even think about things. A hundred percent. Because like, yeah, you're right. Like with YouTube, the temptation is just to plan and plan and plan and look at something from every tiny angle and switching that off is very difficult and requires a lot of effort. But like the thing I always say about jujitsu is like, you can't worry about mean comments when a large Brazilian man is trying to choke you to death. <laughs> yeah, the sense of urgency forces in you this mindfulness. Yeah, and like the mindfulness is a huge part of it because like, you know, I, I think early on in jujitsu, everyone is trying to think their way out of a situation. You're like, okay, what can I consciously do here? Um, 
can I create some space and get out of the, and like, you know, but I think as you get on and like, I had to stop jujitsu because of the pandemic and my club's coming back in a month or two and I can't wait. But towards the end there, what I was finding is like, yeah, during the drills, I'm trying to figure everything out. But the more that I rolled, the more that my mind was just going completely blank when I rolled and I was just like acting and reacting. And, you know, there was a real bliss in that. And like, I miss it so bad now and I just cannot wait to get back to it. Something you mentioned earlier is about with things like this, you can't expect it to last forever. And what I'm talking about is with your YouTube fame or success. So have you already started kind of a rainy day fund or like plans for what you might need to do or what you want to do if this were to end? Um, I definitely like... I'm pretty careful to try and save money and like to try and have a big backup there when things kind of do go downhill. Um, in terms of what I'll do next, I don't know because I, to me, I don't have that information. Like, I think it's important to plan for the future, but I also think it's important to understand when you don't have the correct information to be able to make the next move. And for me, I'm still totally in love with making YouTube videos. I love making YouTube videos now more than I did when I started. And I'm still, I, it's really important to me to improve making YouTube videos. And like, you know, the person, this, I, I hate saying this because it's so cliched and it sounds so corny, but the person like I'm trying to compete with on YouTube is me from a year ago. You know, I want to make better videos than I made last year. I want to make stuff this year that I just wouldn't have been able to make last year. And that constant drive to improve is what keeps this fun for me. And so while that flame is there, I can't really imagine going on to anything else. But I also just kind of have to believe that when the time comes to move on to something else, some other door will open. And I know that's kind of naive, but I think that's kind of how you have to be when you're kind of following your gut like this. It's almost like uh, you're considering your YouTube career like martial arts belt progressions where you're like, okay, I used to be at a blue belt level. Now I'm at a purple belt level and you want to just keep getting better than you were yesterday. Yeah, totally. And um, I also did, I did Taekwondo for, for like a decade before I did Jiu-Jitsu. And I really liked that as well. But I always remember how hung up I was on the black belt. Like I really, really just wanted the black belt, you know? And eventually I got it. And like, you know, one of my fondest memories, one of my proudest memories of getting that black belt. But also I feel like I kind of wish like I had just relaxed a bit more and just enjoyed the training and enjoyed the sparring, you know, because I think that's where the real value from this stuff comes. And that's kind of how I feel about YouTube, you know? So then what drew you into anime in the first place? Um, my earliest memory of watching anime was um, my cousins got a, D got a VHS copy of Akira that they had recorded off a German sci-fi channel that used to play in Ireland. <laughs> and they wouldn't let me watch it because I was like five or something. And that's correct because you should not let a five-year-old watch Akira. But I always remember like watching through the crack in the door and just seeing like this really violent adult animation and just having my mind absolutely blown because it was like there was this just secret world of cartoons that I didn't know about and it was so, 
like intoxicating is the only thing I could describe it. And for years, I wanted to find these cartoons, but I didn't even know they were called anime because this was like, this was like early 90s Ireland. You know, like no one knew what Studio Ghibli was. No one knew that Japan made cartoons in early 90s Ireland. And um, so I just called them cartoons that bled. <laughs> and um, that started like a lifelong just obsession with this, exotic form of media that was just so 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 just like spellbinding to me like i was i i was obsessed with it and um you know i kind of miss those days in a way because even when i was growing up being a teenager you know there was still no anime in ireland but like i can remember finding like a dvd copy of akira in in um electronics boutique and just, it was like the biggest find of my life. You know, like I couldn't believe I had found Akira and like, you know, taken that home and I must've watched it like 30 times. And I kind of miss that in a way now, because now like, you know, everything's at your fingertips. Any anime you want, you can go online and find it, you know, either through a subscription like Crunchyroll or with just, you know, your own ingenuity. Um, and I kind of miss that feeling of feeling like it was treasure, like it was this thing that you could search for. Now there's no scarcity to it. No, no, I can find whatever I want. So I know you've mentioned in previous videos that you got into martial arts from anime. I think you said Dragon Ball Z. Mm -hmm. But what came first, anime or love of pro wrestling? Well, I can remember discovering anime. I can't remember discovering pro wrestling. I've just always loved pro wrestling for my entire life. Um, and in a way, like what I love about them is very similar. Like they're both theatrical. They're both intense forms of entertainment, especially with shown in anime. Like there's so much overlap with wrestling because, you know, you have the you have the best people in it. You have the ones you want to build up and the ones that you want it to be like a big deal when they win and lose. And so it was that kind of storytelling. I think I was always drawn to is pro wrestling popular in Ireland or your part of Ireland? There's actually a big underground. Well, it's 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 a shame because before the pandemic, it was getting very popular. There's um an Irish wrestling league called Over the Top Wrestling who kind of cater to like a more adult crowd, and I love them. They are they are just fantastic. It's like because a lot of these wrestlers, like they're they're Irish lads, right? And so they, they, a lot, a lot of them don't get the opportunity to go to America and a lot of them might never get any notoriety, but because of that, like they give it everything they have and they're really spectacular. And there is like, um, there, there is like a history of wrestling in Ireland, but I think OTT particularly is like, like if anyone is going to Ireland and you even think you might like wrestling, check out an OTT show. They're fantastic. So what do you think it is about pro wrestling that makes it worth our attention? so there's a couple of things like I'm, I'm sure like there's a lot of your listeners that would be more into like mma and st like ufc and stuff like that i think uh we have a good cross-section of people who like mma and pro wrestling so okay cool well to me like mma is a competition pro wrestling is storytelling and like you know when you go very far when you go far back into history stage production has always been a huge part of entertainment right like right from like from the kind of shakespeare days like it was pop entertainment for a long time to me the true modern day evolution the pop culture evolution of theater is pro wrestling 
you know? And I know theater is still alive and well, but when you turn a talk about like entertainer for the masses, there's no theater show on earth that impacts like pop culture as much as wrestling does. And what I think about it is it really just comes down to storytelling. You know, people fall in love with these characters. And what's crazy to me is like pro wrestling is like, it's like a giant soap opera, but it's one that you can shout at as it happens and the storyline <laughs> will change, you know? And that's just fascinating to me. And then like, there's some things that pro wrestling does that only pro wrestling can do that I just think is absolutely just so interesting. Like, I don't know, are, are you into pro wrestling at all? Yeah say like the CM Punk pipe bomb. Yes. What other medium could that happen in? And like, if people are unaware, this was basically CM Punk, who is this wrestler. You can watch the clip on YouTube. You absolutely should. It's nine minutes and it's just some of the most blistering entertainment you'll ever see. It's this wrestler who was sick of being ignored. He was sick of being put on the low card matches. He was sick of not winning titles. He was sick of not being put in WrestleMania. And so they told him, okay, here's a mic. Go out there and just let loose. And he let loose. He let loose this tirade against like, the WWE against his own fans, everything. And it was real and fucking raw and it blew up. And then they started to work that real tirade into his fictional wrestling persona. And like that to me is the most just mind blowing, fascinating thing. Like where, where does the fiction end and where does it begin? And like, I have a whole 30 minute video about this online that you can watch, which is called, um, uh, wrestling is dumb and beautiful and i love it or something like that <laughs> and um, i changed the name of it recently it used to be um why professional wrestling is fascinating um and i i, I kind of talk about like it all there but it's just wrestling is like pretend it is fake but it can be so weirdly real as well and i just i think that's so interesting so kind of similar to shonen anime with wrestlers you might follow their career for years and years. So you see their evolution. So then do you have a favorite character from pro wrestling? I go back and forth on this so often. Um, I think my favorite wrestler right now is Kenny Omega. Um, he's in currently in AEW. He used to work in New Japan. And he's just one of the best wrestlers i've ever he's just got so much like in-ring charisma he's so good at telling stories his movements are so quick and believable he's incredible um another b would be uh kazuchiki kazuchiko Kada, the rainmaker from new japan just in terms ne barely ever says anything on the mic no real gimmick other than he is the best wrestler um, but an incredible, incredible storyteller in the ring. Like, just beautiful. In terms of all-time, Undertaker's up there. Brett the Hitman Hart's up there. Um, Stone Cold would be up there. CM Punk. Um, Kota Ibushi, another New Japan wrestler, is just absolutely incredible. Uh, Matt, Mick Foley, Mankind's. Um, those would be a lot of my greats. I'm definitely the second we hang up this podcast, I'm going to be like, oh, geez, and this other person. <laughs> but yeah. So that's an interesting point. You're mentioning in-ring performers and the ability for them to tell a story in the ring. Whereas in America in particular, and especially of a certain time, it was more about the storytelling was their gimmick. They were almost like a character actor. They were so over the top in their character. And then the story or their in-ring performance was secondary to that. 
So do you think now that's a change in pro wrestling, maybe led by Japan, but now internationally, people are less about the gimmicky kind of over-the-top character and more about how well this performer tells a story in the ring? To me, those are two paths. And it's just dependent on which one the wrestler wants to go down. But how much, how good you are at one will directly contribute to your success in another. Because like you could say that, oh, wrestling is kind of, it has taken up a more kind of hard hitting in ring style. But then you look at characters like Bray Wyatt, like The Fiend, who my favorite wrestler of this generation, bar none, um, at least in, at least in WWE. Um, he took this kooky, crazy gimmick and he made you believe it. And, you know, the last person to do that really successfully, probably The Undertaker. And now it helps that Bray Wyatt is great in the ring. He He's able to move in ways that a 350-pound man should not be able to move. And he's a good storyteller. He understands how to communicate stories physically. But his gimmick and the creativity and the commit... Like, at some point, I feel like... It all just comes to it. It's it's nearly all the same thing because how you tell a story with your gimmick is going to feed into how you move in the ring. Like one of my favorite examples of this is The Undertaker, right? The Undertaker, whenever he had the WWE title, he was always careful to never wear it around his waist. Instead, he'd carry it by his side. And because to him, the character of The Undertaker was this ephemeral otherworldly being you know? And so if he, if he wore the belt around his waist, it would show that he cared about this material possession, but that wasn't the undertaker. And so it always just hung around his side nearly like it was an afterthought. And that was the perfect, like, that was the perfect encapsulation of that character. But then like, say you have someone like the rock, the rock would always drape out over his shoulder because the rock was always about being perfect and displaying his pride and that he was the best. And so it made sense and when you translate that kind of physical storytelling into acting, into in-ring performance, it it affects how you wrestle. And so in a way, it's nearly all the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So it's kind of two different paths into the ring. Um, it's it's two different paths, but really it all leads to just embodying this fictional character. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. So let's think about anime in this way then. For people who don't watch anime, what makes anime so great? Well, like I think when you start talking about what makes anime great, you kind of have to talk about like what makes animation great. And the best quote I can think of that is, I think it's, I'm probably going to butcher this, but it's on this, uh, it's on the cover, it's on the inside cover of this animator's manual called The Illusion of Life. Um, And it's that animation can convey whatever the mind can conceive. And so with anime particularly, 
because Japan has more of a culture of comics and manga, like comic books, and I know it's changing in the West very gradually, and we it's come a long way from what it was, but um, comic books in Western culture have always been seen as for kids. And you can see examples of this like in the 1950s and 60s when like horror comics became a huge thing and there was a massive public backlash against them. And so they, you know, they got, they got toned down, they got censored, they got taken away. And since then, the idea is that comics have been for children. And because comics were for children, when animation started to take off, it too was seen for children. That never happens in Japan. There was never, there was never like a conservative backlash against comics. They were just for everyone. Um, so anyone in life, no matter what you're into, like I've read comics about, you know, like wine tasting. I've I've read comics about, you know, running a school, about like becoming a farmer, about anything you can imagine, like at manga. And there's this much, there's more of a feeling in Japan that manga is just for everyone. It just depends on what kind of manga you're into. And when you translate into that into anime, which is like animated manga, that means there's anime for everyone. So it doesn't have to adhere to one thing. Now, Western animation is catching up a lot in that regard, but it's still this idea that you can just do anything in animation. You can make it about fighting. You can make it violence. You can make it like, you can make it dark. You can make it about death. You can make it about lust or anything. And that's kind of the power of anime to me. Because animation itself has this freedom, but then the culture of Japan gives animators more freedom. They're not so hamstrung by only having to do things for children. Do you ever find yourself watching a primetime series or a movie everybody is talking about and then realize this storyline was already done in anime? Big time. Big time. You know, I can't think of any series, but like you can definitely see when people are kind of pulling from anime and sometimes it can be good. And then sometimes I feel like mediums are at their best when playing to their own strengths. Um, and so that's why, like, I don't love to see, like, ideas from anime turning up in, like, put it this way, I've never seen a cool Kamehameha in live action. <laughs> yeah, not yet, right? <laughs> not yet. I will one day, like, one day it'll happen and I'll be, like, awesome, but not yet. So then for a neophyte to anime, would you recommend they start with a series or a movie? So I think there's a couple of series I really recommend for people. I, I think I'd go for a series. Um, there's some movies for sure. Like I, I really hard to find it hard to imagine anyone with an imagination not having a good time with like Spirited Away. Mm. Um, that's that's a great one. I think um, some of the best series for like getting into anime, I would say Death Note's great for getting into anime. I think Attack on Titan is really great for getting into anime. And those wouldn't even be two of my favorite anime. But for someone who's new to it, I think both those really exemplify what's cool about anime. And then something like Cowboy Bebop, I think, is fantastic as well. Like, that is just... like. Cowboy Bebop, it's it's not a great anime. It's just a great story. It's a great show. Like, well, you know, it is a great anime, but it's like, it's more. And I think anyone who cares about like art and characters and storytelling, that show is like just infinite in how good it is. In general, when I hear people talk about anime, they don't talk a lot about how animes can be real tearjerkers. So do you remember watching an anime and just being moved to tears? Oh, yeah, bunch of times. And I remember the, there's a film called The Grave of the Fireflies from Studio Ghibli. And that one, oh, 
that's a hard watch. It's about two a brother and sister, two kids growing up in um I think it's World War Two era Japan and like um in the wake of the bombings and it is it is absolutely brutal. Uh, there's definitely times there's definitely there's one moment in Yu Yu Hakusho um they do like the tragic backstory of one of the villains and you know, I you, you would think at this point I would be immune to anim- to sad backstories for anime villains, but oh, like it still kills me when I watch it. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think like you know, I love when a piece of media makes me cry because it's like, well, I have really got my money's worth out of this, you know. For me, I think it was Wolf Children. It was an anime movie. But there's one particular scene where I just, I think it's not just me because it was released in the theater. So even in the, everybody in the theaters were just choking up. Have you seen that movie? I have. Was it the scene with the dump truck? The scene that I'm thinking of is where the mom is saying goodbye to her son and just kind of anguishing that I never did anything for you or that's how she felt. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, that was pretty brutal. Um, there was, um, a silent voice also just fucking destroyed me (laughs) yeah oh my god i was like weeping in the cinema at that one and then like i got outside to my friends and they're all like yeah it was okay and i was like yeah these type of animes also it's not like sixth sense where they hit you over the head or the gimmick isn't so much about the twist ending but the movie really comes together at the end when you see maybe it's not a twist it's this emotional payoff that really hits you like a ton of bricks that i think a lot of animes, especially anime series, where they build up, build up, build up, and then it hits you with this payoff that I think nobody does it better than than anime. Yeah, it really can. And like especially with like kind of long running anime. Like I remember one of the first times an anime made me cry, it was Pokemon. And I wasn't <laughs> like I wasn't like young, like a kid. I was like maybe 15, 16. And it was when um there was two moments. The first was the bye bye Butterfree when Ash let go of his Butterfree. Destroyed me. <laughs> but then I remember there was like this one moment way later on where Ash separates from Brock and Misty. They all go their own ways. And like it wasn't a dramatic scene, they didn't have a fight or anything. It was just like Brock had to go back to his gym, Misty had to go back to her family. And it just really got me because they had been through so much, you know, like they had gone through everything. And it was just this really human, sad goodbye where none of them really knew how to end it because how do you end something like that? And it was beautiful. Like, it was amazing. When you have a series like that or a series you've invested in for so long, let's say it's like years, how do you figure out how to write a video essay for something that big then? It's a tricky one, right? Because like making videos about the stuff you care most about is the hardest. And I know YouTube, some YouTubers who just don't because it's really torturous to try and put onto paper why something causes the emotional reaction in you. It does. Um, and for me, I, it's like, I'll be watching something and then all of a sudden I'll just feel like this heat in my chest because I know like it's getting me, like it's making me emotional, whether it be, you know, excitement or like happiness or sadness or whatever, it'll just push me to a certain point. And I'll be like, oh fuck, I need to make a video about this. And that will, that'll really, I won't be able to 
leave that then. But that all that is is like it's just a seed. You know what I mean? And by itself, that's nothing because that's not a video. Like for a video, you have to have a structure and a story and a kind of angle. You know, you need to have you need to know what you're gonna say. And so I'll leave it. And sometimes it'll take a couple of weeks, sometimes it'll take a couple of years, but at some point something will come into my head and I'll be like, this is the story I need to tell about that video. And from there, it's usually between three or four months that I'll start working on it. And from there, yep. And from there, I'll um, I'll kind of refine it down. I'll do a dummy script, which is where I write a full script in a day and then just throw it away because it's not going to be anything close to what I want to say. But the process of doing that is going to eliminate so many paths I don't want to go down that the path that the path that I do want to go down will start to become more obvious. So even though it is visual, you start with writing first. A hundred percent. Yeah. And because it takes you so long, then you must have multiple projects going on at once. I have a lot of projects like simmering away, like in my subconscious, but most of the time I, I work in three week cycles. So I'll do a research week, a writing week, and an editing week. And it's usually kind of a mad crush to get it done by the end. Like I, I generally have to crunch quite a lot, but it's the kind of way of, of working that I'm the most happy with. So then because you rely on this kind of gut feeling, do you do things to make sure that that never burns out? Do you try to give yourself breaks? What do you do? So generally every, say, four months, I'll take maybe uh maybe a week break or sometimes a two week break, depending on how burnt out I am. And that's become very important in kind of just staying healthy because the way I work is, is it's quite intensive. And if I don't take care of myself, like, you know, physically or mentally, it can lead to some pretty dark places. Um, Kind of like a lot of stuff I was talking about earlier, where a lot of your validation comes through that world. And so I do have to be pretty conscious of that and like really trying to do things, you know, like again, like jujitsu, like martial arts, like cycling that take me away from all that when I'm done. So speaking about life as a YouTuber, then there's been a lot covered about how bad YouTube can be. And a lot of research has gone into the nature of the YouTube algorithm. There's a whole New York Times podcast dedicated to it. I don't know if you've heard of it called Rabbit Hole. I have, yeah. So one side of it is how YouTube recommendations can program the viewer and nudge their behavior and then ultimately their beliefs. Yeah. But the algorithm works both ways because it can just as much influence the creator's views since they spend so much time on YouTube themselves. And they are also chasing whatever it is YouTube says their audience is into. So with a lot of controversial figures on YouTube, they all didn't start out that way. And if you look at their timeline, you can see their progression where they started becoming like this, this YouTube feedback loop that I mentioned earlier. So is this something you've ever given much thought about how YouTube might be affecting you and, and how you could kind of prevent it from affecting you so much? So I think kind of specifically from the YouTuber side, what you're kind of talking about is analytics, right? you are talking about the channels, the videos on people's channels that blow up, the ones that become successful and the ones that do well for them. And YouTube has this absolutely like labyrinth, like extensive page of all the different analytics, the type of people who watch your videos, how much of your videos they watch, how long they watch for, when they drop out, all this kind of stuff. And um, it's funny because like I end up at a lot of these kind of like 
you know, industry parties and YouTube parties for different like people. And a lot of the time, this, the conversation matter turns to analytics and what's working for your channel <laughs> and what's not, you know? Yeah. But for me, I took one look at my analytics page ever. Ever? Yeah. And I said, I think this is fucking dumb. And I closed it and I never looked at it again. And the truth of the matter is that I make the videos I want to make. And if people want to watch them, cool. If people don't want to watch them, cool. But I am not like, I'm not becoming a slave to some fucking numbers, you know, like I'm because at that, like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And that's served me pretty well, honestly. So then that's how you avoid it. You don't even bother playing that game. You don't look at it. No. And I, I think there's a few, there's a few creators who I suspect are like that. I don't know anyone for sure, but I know so many creators who are not like that. Um, and like, it's um, like, I get it. Like, you know, people want to ensure they're living. They want to, they want to make sure they're doing everything they can to stay relevant. Cause it's a, you know, it's, it's a war out there, like trying to do that. Um, and so I wouldn't like blame anyone for doing it, but for me, I've just never taken that approach. And I think that's actually kind of worked out best because I think like, you know, um, one of my most successful videos is called, um, the bizarre world of fake martial arts. And it's about all these kind of pretend martial arts styles that have become popular and how they become popular and all this kind of stuff. And the way I look at it is if I was an analytics guy, there would be no way that that would have been a logical video to make because it's like, well, I'm an anime channel. That's what people know me for. But over and over again, the videos that I've become most proud of are the ones that are the weirdest, wildest swings, the ones that are the furthest away from anime, you know? And I think in that case, I just, I got to follow my gut with this stuff. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think YouTube does shape the kind of videos people make. I have always ignored that. And I'm very fortunate in the fact that that's worked out for me. And like, that's, you know, the other thing. I am very lucky to have gotten where I have. Um, like, regardless of whatever the quality of my, how high someone thinks the quality of my videos is or is not, like, I've been hugely fortunate to get to where I am. Being a YouTuber, have you noticed that YouTube itself has tried to address some of the criticism they've gotten about how their algorithm works or their, or that they're platforming very far right people or creating this kind of like right wing rabbit hole? Um, yeah, that they, they have tried to address that. And like, um, I, there's a lot I don't like about YouTube, but basically it was the, did you, um, you, you probably know more about this than me, but like, you know, how YouTube started feeding viewers into smaller and smaller channels. And that was a big part of what led to the kind of far right rise on YouTube. Um, but I think they have taken steps to try and limit that, which I'm really glad about because yeah the reasons why I shouldn't need stating, but like, I don't want to share my, I don't want to share my platform with a bunch of far right trolls. You know, it shouldn't even get to the point where like, I need to argue with racists that racism is bad. I think YouTube has tried to limit it, it but a lot of it then is just in the insidious, very like kind of, you know, incendiary tactics of the far right and how they do take to ju how just nihilism has fed into racism. And, you know, it, I guess that's a much bigger topic, but yeah. So then have you noticed maybe over the past several years that you've seen rises of more progressive YouTubers on the platform? 
maybe not necessarily talking about politics, but maybe they're talking about anime or manga or animation, or it, it could be anything about pop culture. But it seems like if you actually listen to their analysis, they seem much more inclusive or anti-racist, more LGBTQ friendly and so forth. Yeah, I think there definitely has. Um, and I think like, you know, with the recent times and like the murder of George Floyd and all that you have seen and like definitely have to say this for myself, like you people are a lot more emboldened to to speak up and to talk about it. And that's really great to see, you know, like, um, I don't know when this is going out, but like I am right now planning a, a charity stream this weekend um, for um, Black Lives Matter related charities and uh, LGBTQ related charities. And honestly, I'm not so sure that's something I would have done before all this because I honestly, I just would have been scared, which is shit. Like that, that is, that is shitty of me because I do have a platform and I can make a difference. But I think the fact that that stuff's coming more to the forefront is really important. So let's switch gears here and this will be the final topic. Let's get into martial arts a little bit more because as I mentioned earlier, Dragon Ball Z was a big influence for you for martial arts. And actually Dragon Ball Z is a popular answer for a lot of the young crop of MMA fighters when asked how they began training. If you're under a certain age, uh, a lot of the fighters will say it was Dragon Ball Z. That's awesome, man. And when we talk about favorite fighters, obviously there's Goku. But the other half, maybe sometimes, depending on the room of MMA fighters, maybe more than half will say Vegeta is their favorite character. And I think you said in one of your videos, Vegeta was who really inspired you especially to get into martial arts. So what is it about the character of Vegeta, who is not the main character of Dragon Ball Z, that makes him such a fan favorite? For me, it's because he fails. <laughs> you know, Goku can't fail. You know, Goku doesn't have the option to fail. Because if Goku fails, the world ends, you know? <laughs> but like... Vegeta and like like when you think about it like the only time Goku really kind of fails is against Cell but even then he had trained his son to fight Cell and so his plan still worked you know Goku still won but Vegeta he just takes these just devastating losses like oh my god like you know getting getting murdered by Frieza getting destroyed by Android 18 getting killed by Cell you know it's like he just loses over and over and over, but he he tries again. He gets back up, you know, mm -hmm. and he makes terrible decisions. He makes these awful self-destructive decisions, but he still, he still redeems himself, you know? And like, that's the ultimate thing I think I love about Vegeta. It's like, it's redemption. It's like, no matter how badly you get your ass kicked, no matter how bad you fuck up, there's always a way back if you're willing to fight hard enough. and. That's what I love about that character. You know, that's why to me, he's like, Goku, to me, Goku's fine. He's cool. <laughs> but like that Dragon Ball Z to me is about Vegeta, you know? So that's, I think that's the best answer I could give on that. I've spent my entire life trying to figure it out. <laughs> I think that's a good way to end this then is the way you describe Vegeta. I think that's something we all can relate to especially right now is this uh failure but you just keep fighting and you don't necessarily know if you're going to win or not but you just keep trying totally i think like the value is in the trying you know mm. all right then thanks for your time john no problem sam this is a blast
Now, where can people find you and your work? Um, sure, you can just Google Super Eyepatch Wolf. You can find me on Twitter at Eyepatch Wolf. And also, I run the video game podcast, Let's Fight a Boss. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content and along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye.